Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Stepan, and in this episode, it is the part two of a four-part series with Rufina Garay, and we talk about food. Specifically, we dive into cafeteria food versus fancy restaurants. Second of all, we talk about how food taste changes depending on your level of hunger. Third is using salt in your cooking, cheating. And after the commercial break, we talk about what food you should eat on the trail on these long-distance hikes and how you should hydrate. Enjoy this episode with Rufina Garay. Don't forget to become a patron at patreon.com slash ftapon and leave me a review, preferably a five-star one, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, enjoy our podcast with Rufina Garay. this other hypothesis and tell me if I'm full of shit about this one too. I think there's a natural human tendency, especially amongst Americans, but it's probably a global phenomenon that when food is served in a cafeteria style situation or any kind of like a buffet kind of thing, but especially cafeteria style, Mm -hmm. that no matter what is there, people are going to poo poo it and criticize it on average Mm -hmm. and just denigrate it and say it's tasteless, it's terrible, et cetera. And conversely, uh, you go to a, a restaurant that charges you over $100 a plate, almost universal thumbs up. And my hypothesis, which again, you're probably going to refute, but I'm going to throw it out there, which is if you took some cafeteria food, not all cafeteria food, but some of it, and you put it in a fine dining restaurant and you went in there very hungry, You'd probably, I mean, you, you might not think it's fabulous, but certainly you wouldn't complain about it nearly as much if there was like a candlelit dinner and you were saying, served that same cafeteria food. So I guess it goes back to like the ambiance, the setting and all that stuff mm. that somehow infects our mind and our judgment, even though most people would hear that and deny it and say, no, absolutely not. I can just tell you objectively this cafeteria food is terrible. But I have a mm. feeling that, and same thing, I mean, you and I went to Amherst College. I thought that the cafeteria food was pretty decent. I went to Harvard Business School. At Harvard Business School, they spend a lot of money on the cafeteria. I think the food there is delicious. But no, the people there would complain about it. What do you think? Um, Well, I I think it depends who's in the kitchen. It always depends on who's in the kitchen. And, And so, you know, when I went to culinary school at New England Culinary Institute, one of our classes was actually AM Cafeteria. And another one was PM Cafeteria. And we produced high quality food um, that, you know, oftentimes did local sourcing of at least poultry um, from Misty Knoll Farms. And the quality we put out was high quality, like the kind that you would find in a restaurant because we were training to be in restaurants. Mm. And people would come from around the region to eat with us in our cafeteria because with the level of volume production that we had, we could offer a price point that was reasonable and people get this high quality food. Hold on. This was a, this was a culinary institute cafeteria. Yeah. But see yeah. that kind of, I mean, that's the, that's kind of the, that's I guess the closest I can get to like taking cafeteria food and then putting a nice label on it. And so all of a sudden that's what I mean is that you're carrying that. I'm just wondering is if you were making that same food and you're doing it in a university dorm, uh, university of some sort, and the exact same food served 
there that my guess is that a lot more people were criticized and people wouldn't drive out of their way to get there just because they associate it like it's university, cafeteria food, it's got to suck. Yeah, I think people might have those preconceived biases about it, but I think your your mouth doesn't lie to you. So that like, you know, you if you actually ate it, right? We, we do eat with our eyes first. That's what we always say um, when we're preparing food. So, you know, the mood definitely matters. The way it's plated matters. There's like a, there's somebody who did this Instagram set or maybe Facebook photos of plate ups using ketchup and mustard in different ways, but using like the styling of high end restaurants. And it was just, it was like an interesting commentary on the way that we've sort of kind of perverted our expectations around things. Simple things can be really exciting. And, and most of the time it's a matter of technique. And when, People have become accustomed to these cafeteria settings that don't offer good food. It's because the training isn't there, right? There's a there's a, not enough people who are trained going into the cafeteria setting. And so that means that so much of it is just commodity foods out of a can, which will never be the best un- unless you're, you're doing something different, um, sourcing it differently. I mean, some of it can be like, you know, harvested at the best time of year, but it's only ever going to be canned food as opposed to fresh. So one of the things I, I like that I'm seeing is, you know, these sort of public schools in, in rural areas like where I where I am, they're taking the time to make from scratch food and they're using local ingredients. And if you if you get that, if you get the access to local ingredients, like the soil here is so mineral rich, you almost can't mess it up, Francis. Like you can't, you know, like you just let the ingredient speak for itself. You'd have to work hard to destroy it almost in the in the cooking process. And then there are some people who really care who are in, in the cooking world here and in the kitchens. And they've recognized that as a priority, it's important to feed our children healthy, good, nutritious food that tastes good so that they're building a relationship with food that will continue through their lifetime where they have the expectation of quality. Like I think everyone should expect quality, whether you're, you know, in a grade school, in a high school or in a college. I'd like to see more people demanding that and and more essential workers sort of, you know, taking ownership of that and and getting paid for it too, for that knowledge base that that would make a lot of things different in terms of quality. But yeah, I do think you're right. I think you could fool people into raving about a a food made in a cafeteria that could be sold for $2 a plate, but just presented in a way and and then charge a hundred something for it. Mm -hmm. I I think artistry can kind of help make those things happen on the plate. Sure. And the other, the other belief I, I, I believe in is an Estonian saying, which is an empty Stomach is the best chef. Empty stomach is the best. Well, not for me. I get hangry. <laughs> I get hangry. I don't know if you had that experience. No, no, but but, but, but the, the point of that saying, Rafina, is that when you're hungry, food mm-hmm. tastes delicious. Always. Almost universally. Let's, almost always. Yeah. Right. Almost and always. So, That's true. So I, I always think that like, you know, somebody says, hey, let's go to this expensive restaurant. I'm like, how about we wait an extra hour or two and then go to a much cheaper one? And that food will be a lot better mm. tasting. Oh, interesting. <laughs> That's such a unique thing to, so, to be thinking about. Yeah, it's just a random I'm, thought. Yeah. So, so you know, that's, that, yeah. I, I will say you're right about that always, like that 
that level of waiting, you know, if you're, if you go, I have a thing with hunger where if you go past a certain point, you, you're not hungry anymore. So if you get to that point, I think it's all the same. But if you're actually in that place of hunger, yeah, the meal could be anything. For me, I think what matters more is almost the intention of who's cooking. Like you can tell the difference between exactly the same foods prepared by two different people. And I think you can, whether it's chi or love that infuses the food, you can taste and see the difference. They can have the same thing. Like I I, um, served as a culinary student as a judge for a King Arthur flour cake recipe baking contest. And it was just really interesting to see like how the same recipe could be taken by, I don't know, maybe there were 20 entries and produce a very different cake in each instance. And obviously there are so many factors in terms of heat temperature, the kind of equipment, the way they mixed. But at the end of the day, I also know it's like the intention and the, the, the focus of the the person who's doing that. How do you know um, though? And how do I know? Well, I wouldn't have known there, right? I could make certain assumptions based on how it was presented. Like, you know, certain things that come out looking sloppy or uneven, like th- mm-hmm. that somebody submitted it anyway, instead of saying, oh, you know, it's not quite up to par. Let me sit out this one. Those things you can see. And then you can taste certain things where you're like, oh, this person was not focused. There's too much baking soda. And it creates a certain, you know, metallic taste in the mouth or something. So there's certain things you can know. Rufina, I want to throw another crazy idea off of, off of you, bounce it off of you and see what you say. Okay. I have this, another crazy idea, which is, I think that using salt in your food is cheating. Ah, so salt as an ingredient enhances the, the natural flavor of whatever it is that you're eating. Hence so, cheating. <laughs> I, I think it depends on how you're defining cheating. Why is that cheating to enhance something that's natural to, you know, the ingredient you can have similar effects just using lemon juice um, in terms of enhancing this, the, that certain flavor. I don't think it's cheating because one, you know, certain salts provide minerals that our body needs. And that's important, you know, for proper function. But I think so that I don't, so much I don't of our like food it. in the United States, it's, it's really hard not to get salt. You know, yeah, so I mean, it's 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 infected so many different foods. So mm-hmm. nobody in America has ever died of like a short salt shortage, and never will. True. Um, and so True. that's worrying about like I got to add salt because I know it's good for me, or if I sweat it yeah. out, that kind of stuff. It's really not an issue. So no, to me, it's it's more of the challenge of a chef. I would say is how can you enhance the food without using salt? And that to me is a sign of a chef that knows what the hell they're doing. Yeah. I mean, you, you could easily do it. Because the other one is, is like taking a shortcut. I feel like using salt is like a shortcut. Like, you know, nobody's looking out mm. instant, like. Mm. In- you know, no, I think, I think salt, you know, it's, it's part of like, if I, I, I really view um, cooking as culinary artistry. Um, and so it's just like picking up a different brush to create a different kind of picture. And so salt, depending on your audience, like if you're cooking for older people who can't have a lot of salt, then I'm going to sub out the salt for some lemon juice potentially. But if I'm, if I'm just cooking, you know, just for the average population, there's like a range of what level of salt will kind of create that impact of highlighting the umami, um, which is sort of that savory sweetness combined in one experience. Hold on one second. I I thought, Lemon juice would be a substitute for something like vinegar and not for salt. 
it can be a substitute for vinegar. So like I, I will make a, a salad dressing using lemon juice and garlic and olive oil. And when you are doing liquid preparations, like certain kinds of soup, it's sort of a, a tricking of the palate to not miss the absence of the right range of salt to hit the sweet spot in the body for the brain recognizing that, oh, this is savory and, you know, attractive to my palate. So it, it's not like a, a one-for-one kind of substitution. It's more about how to change the balance of the profile of the food in front of you so that you can enjoy it. But I, I did that for a long time with, I went through a low sodium period for no reason. And, and it's healthier for you. You know, it doesn't tax the kidneys as much. Salt and sugar really behave in the body the same way in terms of our kidneys as a filtration system. Right. So the less you use, the better off you are. You know, lemon juice has vitamin C, great for the Krebs cycle and the cells. You know, so there are all kinds of reasons to, to opt for that. But I don't think it's a cheat. I, I think what I care about is whether a chef is oversalting or undersalting. Because when you when you take the ingredient of salt and you misuse it or miss the mark on using it, that feels, in, in our household, it feels sort of offensive. <laughs> you know, you go out to a restaurant and you um, you pay for it and you'd be like, I, I put myself in your hands to show me what you recognize is the beauty of this food. And when you haven't used the appropriate amount of salt and you understate the flavor of the food by doing so, you create dullness in the food and it doesn't have the brightness it's supposed to have. But what's wrong with and a then, salt shaker at the table? What's wrong? Is it oh, too late? In some cases, yes. Because like when you... Okay, so this is this is about meat eating again, Francis. Oh my <laughs> like God. Salt on the steak <laughs> before it hits the grill or hits a griddle. It sears it in and you have on the surface a, a reaction, a Maillard reaction that caramelizes the sugars at the surface at the proteins. And when the salt is in, embedded, right, it's like embedding it there on the surface, it it impacts your taste buds differently than after it's been fully cooked and you're adding it afterwards. You almost can't repair that kind of situation, particularly with proteins. It just won't be the with same. Animal just proteins? like if you've ever tried animal proteins, but even French fries, like if you were to make your own French fries, right? And you take it out of the hot oil and you start to toss it in a bowl. You want to toss that in salt immediately after it comes out of the fryer because it's searing hot and it will stick with that oil that's just come out of that searing hot fryer. But you, if you did it after it cools down just a little bit, that salt isn't going to stick anymore. And so then you're going to get the dullness of potatoes. It, it, it's really, you can't, I don't think for me personally, I'm like a potato fiend. It's not the same experience having an unsalted potato. This is not the same. Okay. So what the, do you think about that? Well, I agree with you. I mean, definitely things with salt always taste better, almost always. But I, you know, yes, you can oversalt some things. But I just think that I aim for undersalting things. I mean, in the rare moments that I actually cook, just because I always feel like if somebody wants to add something more, they can always add something more. They can add always add salt. And you can't take salt away if you've over, if, if to their taste, you've oversalted it. So, but I understand the concept which you just said, which is adding it after the fact is not the same as doing it during the process. I, I think yeah. that there's certain situations where you got to do it during the process, but I just was yeah. curious what your, your answer is that you've got to some more questions. Let's go through them. 
This episode is sponsored by Rerouted, which is creating a trusted online marketplace to revolutionize the used outdoor gear industry. This allows you to create your own adventure. You know, buying outdoor gear is super expensive and Rerouted is allowing you to do it in a sustainable and inexpensive way. For those who are buying gears, it's great because you're doing something that is environmentally responsible. You're recycling, reusing material and gear. You're also able to get it at an affordable price. So that's the win for those who are buyers. What about for the sellers? Well, you can donate to charity and you can have 50% of the sale of price go to your favorite charity. And also it's a great way just to get rid of stuff that's been accumulating in your closet and not put it into a landfill. It's a great alternative. So how do you get involved? Whether you're a buyer or a seller, you go to rerouted.co. Again, that's rerouted.co. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about another podcast I think you'll enjoy. If I've learned anything about you, it's that you want real talk about the world around you. That's why I think you'll like the podcast Out Travel the System, brought to you by Expedia. It's taking a transparent look at what it's like to travel these days, whether it's through stories from people who have continued cautiously traveling through the pandemic or by staying tuned to the very latest news from the industry. OutTravel the System is backed by a solid foundation of data from Expedia, which means it can guide listeners through the best ways to maximize their travel budgets. The podcast is providing inspiration by talking to people who have made travel a central part of their lives, from professional travel bloggers to travel journalists and beyond. This season features U.S. destinations like Chicago, Boston, and New York, as well as international locations like Spain and France. The episodes will guide you through when to go, where to stay, what to do, and everything else you need to know. Look for Out Travel the System on your favorite podcast platform and like and subscribe now. Yeah, let's go through some more of those questions. So I wanted to know a little bit more about your hiking because I recently subscribed to your podcast because I only knew about it recently and I'm binging on it. Um, And so like I'm imagining all these hikes that you've been doing and and my family has started hiking, but in no way has tried any of these larger hikes that you've been doing. And I have struggled at times to sort of figure out how to find the right snacks on these kinds of hikes for the range of us. You know, I have a young son and the two of us are, are, are chefs. So looking for the palatable snack that's lightweight, even drinks that might help with hydration for a child who doesn't like to drink very often. Those things would be really helpful to, to know about. In the Pacific Northwest, there's so many people who hike on a regular basis. I think it would be great for listeners to hear. In my own experience, I'll just say this. When I did the Boston to New York AIDS ride, every 15 miles, we stopped and we had half a banana and we had a, a cliff bar. And I loved cliff bars because they, they took me on many long rides. But after I did the AIDS ride, I did not want to eat another cliff bar. And it took me like five years to get back to eating them. And I love cliff bar as an organization, um, but, but it was definitely a little rough going for me. And so what, what are your go-to snack foods or things that sustain you with the right amount of calories and protein and all that? It's a tough question because for me, I am different than you, Rafina. I mean, you take food very, very seriously and you appreciate it at a level that I don't get close to. I admit it. I 
see, especially when I'm hiking, food as a utilitarian thing. And I also don't have a child who may say, I don't want to eat that because I, so I'm not walking with them. And I realize that children can be very picky and yet you still Mm -hmm. need to feed them one way or another. And so you're facing challenges on two fronts that I don't face. Uh, Mm -hmm. You have a, I think probably a pickier palate than me versus I just look at it as utilitarian. I just need calories to keep walking. And then and then two, I don't have a child that I'm trying to nourish mm-hmm. as well. So those are two mm-hmm. different challenges. I walked across America four different times, one through the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and then I did a yo-yo, which is up and down round trip on the Continental Divide Trail. And the Continental Divide Trail was interesting from a culinary perspective because I didn't even bring a pot to boil water. In fact, oh I n- had no cooked food for seven oh my gosh. months. Oh my gosh. Yes. Explain that to me. Explain how you did that. Yeah. So what I did is I just brought energy bars. I brought anything that didn't need to be cooked. So that's what I ate. Now, when I went to resupply into towns, which happened about roughly every four or five days, then in the town, I would eat a warm meal. And But Mm -hmm. then that would just be one meal for once in four or five days. And then I went back on the trail. What I would eat would be dehydrated soy milk. And then I would have breakfast like cereal in the morning. I could also soak couscous overnight. So if you just, Mm. in cold water, so if you just put couscous Mm -hmm. in cold water, it's edible Mm -hmm. after, I don't know, Mm -hmm. an hour's worth of time. And and the other thing I ate, I can't remember, uh, sometimes textured vegetable protein. Also, if you just soak it in water, Uh it doesn't need to be boiled or heated because I didn't have a stove. I had no way to heat water. So I, I, everything had to be soaked if I, if I did that way. And then of course, energy bars, the key is variety. Don't just binge on cliff bars, you know, have Mm -hmm. like five, six, seven different types of energy bars out there. So you have a variety. Uh, and then I had a lot of different trail mixes and nuts and seeds okay. and that kind of stuff. That was also high dense energy. That's a wonderful okay. uh, source of energy. They call it trail mm-hmm. mix for a reason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. good for the trail. Mm-hmm. And what, oh, the other thing is when I went into town to resupply every four or five days, I would buy fresh fruits and vegetables. And I did get, of course, dry dehydrated uh, fruits as well to get some of the mm-hmm. vitamins. And the fresh fruits and stuff like that, I would eat them within the first couple of days of hiking. So I would bring apples, oranges, uh, kiwi, bananas, and I would have peanut butter and jelly. Hey, there's your favorite again yes. with, with bread. And I would also eat while I walked a lot of times. Uh, so it was a very different experience because I had to put in about 35 miles every day. And so to wow. do that, That's you don't- so much. You don't want to walk fast. You want to just walk yeah. at a constant pace, like a leisurely pace, but you want to do it a lot. And so there's okay. roughly in 12 hours in a day, if you're walking, you know, every day about four miles an hour, then you can do it. You know, it's or three miles an hour, mm-hmm. four miles an hour, that kind of stuff. You can get a lot of miles in. So yeah. yeah, I would walk 12 to 15 hours a day and I would just eat. I would even brush. I would floss while I was walking, looked at maps while I was floss and while I was, while I was walking, everything I did while I was walking. It was a long trek. So it was That's good. amazing. Okay. Yeah, can but, picture it better now with that. <laughs> Yeah. You know, explanation. Oh, sorry. One more thing. When I was on the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide Trail, sorry, Pacific Crest Trail and the Appalachian Trail, where I did have a stove and I actually hiked with a woman, my girlfriend at the time, that's when I did have a stove. And what we would do is we would eat our heaviest meal, usually at two or three in the afternoon when it was the hottest time of day. 
And so oh, that's when you okay. kind of take a break in the hottest time of the day, cook around 2 p.m. or so. And then that also has the advantage of you have plenty of time to digest it. Because I really don't believe mm-hmm. in eating a lot, heavy meal right before bedtime. It's, I think, a yeah. terrible idea. So yeah. there you go. That makes sense. And oh, you know, just a digression, but a point of interest for me. When you were cooking on the Appalachian Trail, did you pull out your umbrellas? To yeah. shield you while you were cooking? Uh, yeah. Okay, especially, great. I mean, if it's raining, obviously, or if it's, yeah. if, if it was sunny. Well, actually, the Appalachian Trail is also kind of nice because they have shelters roughly every 10 miles oh, or so. I didn't know that. There's these little, it's, okay. it's, it's three walls and a roof. And so it's not completely okay. enclosed. But okay. when it's raining or if it's very sunny, you can actually go and cook in the shelter or next to the shelter anyway. Oh. So, but yeah, an umbrella is super useful whenever you're hiking and it's a completely underestimated tool. Yeah. I love that. I, it just made me want to go out and find one of those umbrellas that you mentioned to yeah. the exit. What is it? Ex-ex- well, ex-officio is the Cellier? rain jacket, but um, the, the one that it's gossamer gear that makes the umbrella that's really lightweight okay. and, and, okay. and has a reflective surface on it. Okay. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize there was a reflective surface on yeah, it when of, I was listening. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me because my first experience of going to the Philippines when I was five years old, my aunt bought me a parasol and you had mentioned the word parasol in the the podcast. And it was my first time thinking these people are using an umbrella the wrong way, (laughs) like in my head as a (laughs) five-year-old. And then I realized how useful it was um, to block the sun. And, um, you know, it really changed my impression and, and the way that they make the parasols, it's, it's for your pleasure too, because they usually have nice prints on them and, Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I don't think we value the umbrella quite as much. And I was really grateful to hear you talking through the reasons to use one. And I am going to bring it because one of the last times we were out, it it wasn't hiking, but we were walking along some trails along the Dutchess spit and um, went out on the spit. And I had not adequately covered my son in sunblock. So it was a total parenting fail. And when we got home, his his ear looked like bacon, Oof. and so that's like our our code word, you know, our code phrase. You, you you know when he doesn't want to put on the sunblock, we don't want your ear to look like bacon. <laughs> so, but maybe maybe a reflective umbrella would be a really nice thing that he would enjoy because he is not a hat wearer. Right. And I I like that idea. Yeah. So. Totally. What's your anyway, next question? How how much of your pack is dedicated to food space, like percentage wise? Okay, so that's, the that, other that's a good question. So food is probably the heaviest item as far as volume is concerned because okay. and and you want to make it especially so like you don't want to take I don't know rice crackers or something that takes up a lot of volume in your pack but offers very mm-hmm. few calories. That's again going back to nuts and trail mix, it's dense and you want dense amount of healthy calories in your mm-hmm. food. And so as a percentage of your pack it might only take up about at maximum 25% of your backpack because what really okay. takes up a lot of space is your sleeping bag, to some extent the tarp, and then you have some other stuff, but maybe about 25%. And of course, as you hike through the days, that percentage goes down to nearly zero because by the okay. ideally, if you planned yeah. it right, you should be coming with an empty backpack to the next town, to the next resupply yeah. point. But yeah, about 25%. I would say... And as far as weight, though, it's different. Uh, as far mm-hmm. as the percentage of the weight, it can be up to 50% or more of the weight. Oh, Because sure. again, it's that dense, right? And mm-hmm. so my backpack without food and water weighed about six pounds or about three kilograms, which is very wow. little. 
And I definitely carried more than six pounds of food. So it was probably about 75% of my weight was food. Maybe 80% of the pack weight was food. A lot. And of course, water. Water is super heavy as well. And when you're walking across, I walked over 2,000 kilometers worth of deserts. And that's, those are, you know, you got to carry a lot of water, sometimes six, eight liters of water. One time when I was in Libya, I was walked, walking to the tallest mountain of Libya. My, uh, I was walking uh, with Rejoice, my wife and her and my brother-in-law and the three of us, we carried about 38 liters of water between the three of us. It was Mm. a lot of water because we weren't going to have water for like two days, nonstop of walking. (laughs) Yeah. So, water so you know, that's an interesting thing to me because I, I think I have certain fears around running out of water uh, or running out of food. I'm sure that comes from my parents um, and their sort of relationship as immigrants, like my, my father in particular. You did, you did not pass that fear down to your son, my dear, because no. he's, um, he's not afraid of, of running out of water because he doesn't drink enough water. I know, I know, I know. I have been inadequate in expressing those types of things, but, um, but, but I would say that like to embark on a journey where you would know that there could potentially be some scarcity of those things. I mean, that's probably doesn't even, does that even occur to you when you're, you know, embarking or like, that's such a passe thing because you've already planned so well. Like I, I would worry that I didn't plan well enough to, yeah. to bring the right amount of things. When I was in Chad climbing the tallest mountain of the Sahara desert, it's called Emikusi. It's about 3,800 meters or, about, or so, I believe. There, I did not plan well. I had mm-hmm. intelligence from the locals telling me that there was probably some water source up near the summit of the mountain, like Mm. on the way up effectively, maybe about 80% of the way there or 70% of the way to the summit. And there wasn't. And we searched and searched and we didn't find it. And and to make matters worse is my wife and my brother-in-law and me, the three of us, got totally separated. It's a long story. I'm not going to bore you the details. Right. But, and they (laughs) spent overnight in the very cold, because the Sahara Desert gets quite cold at night, especially at 3,000 mm-hmm. meters. And they were alone mm-hmm. without a sleeping bag. And oh, they gosh. nearly died, both of them. And that was a very <sighs> precarious situation. And we were dehydrated. And none of us had oh, water. We were So we had oh, gone up so high up in the mountain. And we could have easily, not easily, but we could have made it. We've been quite thirsty. Had we just all stuck together and gone up to the top of the mountain, the Mm. summit, turned around and come all the way back. We would have been thirsty, Mm. but we could have made it. And the problem was, is that we all got, we all went in three different directions and Mm. got separated and we wasted a lot of energy and a Mm. lot of hydration walking up and down the mountain and getting lost and looking for each other and all that kind of stuff. So by the time we actually reunited, we Mm. were utterly, utterly dehydrated. And that was, you know, a very scary moment for us. So that was the closest I got to uh, being in a tough situation there where water was an Uh issue. And another times things turned out well, for example, on the Pacific Crest Trail, I kind of, there's a part of the Pacific Crest Trail where they leave water caches, where they leave, Mm. uh, where these trail angels, we call them trail angels, these people Mm. come by and and drop like, I don't know, 50 gallons of water just in the middle of the desert. Mm And you can't really depend on it, but I decided to depend on it. And I got there and there they were. Oh, that's nice. But had they not been there. (laughs) Yes. And I'm sure that happens to plenty of Pacific Crest Trail hikers. They get there and they're they're expecting. And, but that can be also for a stream. You might expect a spring to be Mm. active, 
but you come there too late in the season or it wasn't a really wet mm-hmm. winter. And so the spring is not running full and you get there and you're, mm-hmm. you can be screwed. And it's always that balance. And so most people, yeah. what they do is that they take more water than they think and that's it. But okay. other types, other, and that's probably what you would do since you got a phobia yeah. of this, but. Right. <laughs> But it's not quite a phobia yet. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't done anything enough to know. <laughs> no, but it would a be a phobia. Like if you did set yeah, out, you'd yeah. be overly yeah, cautious, I would be worried. my guess. And yeah. you, would, you would overplan and take too much water, even though it's heavy. Yeah. You would just say, I'd rather be safe than sorry. Yeah, I, I can recall traveling around Italy two different times. One where I was really just going post culinary school and... I did not have the mindset that that you have about packing light. So I overpacked in the first place and I was carrying, I probably would say about 50 to 60 pounds of stuff in my backpack. And then I found myself accumulating things, one of which was like my all-time favorite Italian hand-cranked pasta maker that I bought over there, right, and negotiated. And by the time I, I left Italy, I had probably close to 75, 80 pounds of stuff on my back. We were lucky enough to find lockers to place them when we went on larger hikes as we hiked Cinque Terre. But at that time, the conversations around hydration were were not really, they weren't, weren't so mainstream. And we were walking around Cinque Terre without even a bottle of water. It was like this, the dumbest thing. Like, how could we have not known that? Like, we didn't really know, like, what is it to hike Cinque Terre? And, and here we were going, and we really had to rely on the people right. who were living there, recognizing we were just two, like, ridiculous young yeah. women hiking this trail, not recognizing what we'd gotten ourselves into with all these steps going up Cinque right, Terre. Right, right. Um, and, and it was just surprising to me that, that I would find myself in that position of not planning enough and relying on, on local people to kind of make sure we didn't dehydrate fully. Right. So those, those are some I want to I, I want to switch the conversation a little bit to talk about sure. the co- more controversial topic, which is hunting. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash FTAPON. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the Wander Learn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.